0: hi friends welcome back to the field guide to body language podcast i am laurel your host and fellow body language nerd it is um sunday before release tuesday and i am honestly, only about 30% done with the research and the notes for the Hugh Jackman case study that I wanted to release this week. So I'm going to give myself a little bit more time to work on that and not crunch and stress and do a half-assed job on something I deeply care about. All that being said, there have been some things sitting in my brain for for literally years um, that that have been bothering me. So I thought I would just give those to you to think about or be bothered by hopefully not be bothered by hopefully they'll just be things for you to think about so a couple of years ago i went to see rogue one in the theaters it's part of the star wars uh universe saga epic i don't know we'll call it a saga let's go with saga it's part of the star wars saga and yes of course the movies made in the 80s were the best and yes harrison ford shot first we'll just get that other way up top in Rogue One, the creators used CGI to bring back General Moff Tarkin, who was originally played by Peter Cushing. And here I have to give credit and huge thanks to my son. Harrison saved me probably two hours of research. All I said to him was, do you know that guy who they brought back in CGI in one of the new movies? I think he wears a dress. And Harry he goes, yeah, that's General Moff Tarkin. And he's in Rogue One and A New Hope. So thank goodness for him, because typing that into a Google search would have been a hot mess. But as I watched Rogue One originally, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something wrong or just a little bit different with General Tarkin's movement. Um, Now the creators of Rogue One spent a a lot of time and a lot of money making the best CGI reproduction of Peter Cushing possible. Um, They started off with an actor in costume doing a Peter Cushing impression and then overlaid, I, I don't know the technical term here, but like a CGI mask so that they could change his facial features to more closely match Cushing's. It is a phenomenal achievement, truly beautiful artwork, but I couldn't, shake the feeling that something was a bit off in his movement so that well laurel if something's off you have the tools to figure it out so just go figure it out so last night i pulled up disney plus in two tabs rogue one in the first tab and a new hope in the second so i could watch peter cushing and his cgi counterpart side by side it was it was really interesting you guys one the cameras have improved. So you can see more details of all the actors' faces um, than in any of the original movies. And I will admit that throws me off a bit. It's it's a substantial difference in camera tech, and it's hard to get beyond just how much more clearly you can see Tarkin's face in the newer movie. But that aside, when I when I looked through the lens of movement analysis, there were two things that struck me, and that should... Really speak to the talent of the creative team at Lucas Studios because I am trained to look for this stuff, and I could talk for hours and hours um, about how movement differs from person to person. And I really only have two notes. The first is that in A New Hope, Peter Cushing does a bit more narrowing, especially of the eyebrows. For those of you taking notes, the action of narrowing lives in the space. I'm sorry, shape category. It can happen anywhere in the body where adducting muscles are present, where muscles that like pull the outside of the body in towards the midline, anywhere those kind of muscles are present, that's where a narrowing action can happen. Sometimes it's big, sometimes it's barely noticeable. Um, but it tends to be, um, mo- we-, we see it most frequently, I guess I should say, in the eyebrows or in the shoulder girdle. In the shoulder girdle, it has more of an insecure or empathetic vibe because it's it it mechanically it kind of has to be coupled with a little bit of a retreating of the chest. But in the eyebrows it tends to be a little bit more direct and it can convey focus or criticism um, and other things as well. But those are the two main ones that are coming to the forefront here. The general Tarkin character primarily narrows with his eyebrows, but he maintains the broad shoulders and stiff upright spine of military posture so that paired with the acceleration and increasing pressure in his voice convey a sharp criticism the cgi character did indeed narrow he did all of the things i just listed but the narrowing happened with less frequency and duration and that made just ever so slight a difference in the in the overall character second you can see by the way the cgi cushing moves his body connections are utilized differently um let me see if i can explain this without deep diving into body human bodies are connected in such a way that movement in one part of the body affects the rest of the body each individual person's body is connected in a similar way but moves within those connections a little bit differently. And and that's because we all have a different history, a different movement story, we'll say. In one sample from Rogue One, the CGI Cushing uh, turns his head to talk to another character and the movement is like just a bit disjointed, Um, or, or at least we'll say more disjointed than Cushing, the original, actually moves. And I could imagine this could be due to a couple of things. First, the actor who played as the physical model for Cushing might move with more bound flow and directness, which could create a disjointed look. Uh, Second, this might be an expression that was generated by the CGI team and they made the movement happen, but it's not connected into the body in the functional way that it would be naturally. I don't even know that that level of... of refinement is available in CGI and mad props to the team for like seriously, truly amazing work. It was a challenge to analyze the original actor and the CGI character. And, and the reason it was a challenge was because of the talent and hard work of the CGI team. One of the first things that my Laban advisor said to me um, when I started school was that once you see with, she used to call them the Laban lenses. You, you can't take them off. You can't unsee movement analysis. And she was totally right. It's like eating fr- the forbidden fruit. You, you can't go back from that. And that's why when I see a CGI representation of an actor, it's hard for me to accept that as part of the overall story. I can't not see that it doesn't fit. Sorry about that double negative. Um, the change in character in and out of CGI is jolting for me. But again, I am looking with a very specific lens. One thing that was really fun to watch with Laban lenses was Kate Blanchett's portrayal of Katherine Hepburn in The Aviator. It's a small role and I remember really looking forward to seeing the movie. I actually think it was the only reason I watched that movie because I love Kate Blanchett and I love Katherine Hepburn, but they both look very different. They have very different face shapes. So I was really curious how they were going to pull it off. And at the time I was really interested in stage makeup techniques. So I thought they just might use some wicked stage makeup to bridge the gap, but they didn't. Um, there was a book that I had just flipped through at the time called, what was it called? Making Faces. And there might be more than one. It might be Making Faces 1 and Making Faces 2, um, but it just shows the progression of makeup. Um, in turning one actor's face into another actor's face. I will try and link it in the show notes for you. It's a really interesting visual journey. But I thought they would do something like that, but they didn't. Um, What Cate Blanchett did was a caricature of Catherine Hepburn. And that, how do I say it? Uh, Like it just, it sat well with my soul. And I think it sat so well because you could see that it wasn't actually Catherine Hepburn. But Cate Blanchett did a phenomenal job of embodying her taking Hepburn's movements and mannerisms and just letting them live in her body so that it wasn't even attempting to be an exact representation of Hepburn. And that allowed both actresses to live in the same space. They were both honored in that portrayal. And I love the way it just brought Hepburn back to life. The movie, The Aviator, was super depressing if you decide to go watch it. Very depressing. Um, But the bit with Blanchett uh, was just mm, 10 out of 10 amazing. Oh, You guys, it felt really good to get that off my chest. I've literally been holding on to that for a while. Um, I have no idea how long ago Rogue One and The Aviator came out. But those moments, well, um, no one appreciates me geeking out about movement analysis like you all do. So thank you. While we are talking about this, though, um, I'd love to just touch on video games a little bit. My household consumes a lot of video games. And last night, while Harrison was sharing his massive Star Wars knowledge with me, I was watching him play a game called Elden Ring. If you've played video games in the past couple of years, you you know that animation has come a long way. The artwork is phenomenal. Um, the visualization is phenomenal. Um, it's just... Like, if you look at where games were in the 90s and where they are now, wow, have they come a long way. But what I found interesting about watching Harrison's character last night is that the animated characters, despite now being created with human movement as the foundation, don't really move true to humans game developers use motion capture to create a base for the animation and then programming from there on out to design the movement patterns for the game sequence Um, but even though it's based on human movement there's something off and so i thought to myself okay they don't move like humans i can see they don't move like humans but why why don't they move like humans or or well rather How do I know they don't move like humans? Anyone can look at a video game character and say, okay, that's animation. But can I articulate the difference between an animated character and a real live human using using movement analysis and all the other things I know about how humans move? So we'll find out. I'll give you my thoughts and you can DM me on Instagram um, or drop a note in the comments for this episodes post with your thoughts i am um if you want to find me on instagram i am at laurel foley l-a-u-r-e-l-f-o-l-e-y so last night i saw harrison's character run fight jump and roll the running translates really well from motion capture to animation Um, but, but when the character stops running, like as soon as he pulls his finger off the button, there's no deceleration. The character just stops. And in real life, there should be at least a little bit of deceleration before the running stops because otherwise momentum is just going to throw the body forward into a fall. The jumps look cool. I don't really think I have any notes there. The roll though, when his character rolls, the physics are just off. If a human body goes from a standing position into a roll, that's going to transition almost immediately into a low level movement. You're, you're going down. The roll shouldn't have really any elements of like levitation. Going from standing into a roll should also be in near space, arms and legs really close to the torso in as small a position as possible. What happened with his game character, though, is a more like mid reach movement. And the body doesn't curl up tightly to roll efficiently, and this defeats the purpose of rolling in a combat or stealth setting, which was what he was playing. Um, rolling keeps you low and small, hard to see, hard to hit. If you're rolling mid-level and in mid-reach space, that's like not curled up very tightly and like and, and rolling in the air, then not only are you easy to see, you're actually making yourself a larger target. And you're doing acrobatics, which is totally going to draw attention to your character. That's problematic. On to the fighting. I know they use motion capture for the fighting scenes, and the actors are trained in various forms of combat. So there are a lot of really cool fighting moves available to the character or from the character to choose from. But what we're missing here is the story, the story of the fight, the progression of the fight in the body, and also the story of the character's movement. Let me explain what I mean. In video game fights, when you are hit, your life total goes down. That's it. You keep on fighting exactly the way you started until your life total runs out. In reality, if you are, we'll say, right side dominant and fighting with your sword in your right hand, and you are hit on that side or in that upper right quadrant, you have to switch to fighting with your left hand. So not only are you hit, you also lose the use of your dominant arm. And when you continue to fight with your non-dominant side, you are getting tired faster because you're injured, but also because you have to exert extra energy because you've lost efficiency. That loss of efficiency should be carried over into how accurate your fighting is for the remainder of the encounter. I wonder how much of a hot mess this would be for coders and animators. Probably a very hot, steaming mess, but it sure sounds like a fun project. But let's talk about the story of movement and how it is held in the body. Going back to Harrison's Elden Ring character, after getting hit in the shoulder in his fight, that arm should be out for the count and it should really be that way until given some proper attention. Magic potions and self-healing characters aside, that injury is going to take some time to heal. And as it heals, the affected arm is out. The character is more vulnerable and less efficient while healing. It's it's going to take a toll on the whole body. That arm's going to need specialized attention from a medic of some sort, unless the character can like hide away in a corner and pull a Jason Bourne and stitch himself up. Even then, though, it's going to take some time for that arm to be back to 100%. And then the character on top of that will still have some residual movement adaptations. For instance, the right arm is injured in a fight and then immobilized for a period of time as it heals. That will affect the rest of the body in some way. One of those ways could be that the right side of the back is tight, and that's going to lean the person or character over to the right side a little bit. So there would be a slight lean to the right of the torso. Human bodies will always write themselves vertically. So if the torso leans to the right, we'll say in like the um high lumbar low thoracic region, then the head or maybe even the shoulder girdle will lean to the left. To rebalance the body. And that's going to show up in everyday movement. It would be very cool if that could be carried over into characters um, in games as they walk up to the blacksmith for repair and armor. Um, If you could see the story in the character's movement, oh my gosh, what an amazing experience. Because this is what makes humans and human movement so interesting. It's the story. It's how their movement is held in their body. It's how their experiences are held in their body. And the absence of that is what makes video game characters move just a little bit more like robots than humans. Humans hold their stories in their bodies, and game characters don't don't have that, at least not yet. that's all for today my friends if you are enjoying the show please take a moment to rate and review and next episode we're looking at the movement of hugh jackman which should be excellent fun i'll see you then